This is Guns and Butter. At this stage, as a professional judgment, I can say, if instead of forty thousand, if you were to put in four hundred thousand more troops, still you cannot win Afghanistan. Where the situation stands, because the initiative is with now with the opposition of the Afghan Mujahideen, and more and more recruits are joining up their ranks, because. There is nothing like the the feeling, the the uh, the sense of uh, victory, the smell of victory. They are smelling victory, and therefore, their ranks are swelling. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show: Why America cannot win in Afghanistan. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army. At the height of his military career, it was expected that he would be promoted to the position of Chief of the Army Staff. But due to political pressures from abroad, he was not selected, and as a result, he resigned from the Army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI, from 1987 to 1989, during the fateful period of Afghan Jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. General Ghul faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad, protesting against attempts to dismiss the Chief Justice. He has written hundreds of columns, mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. General Hamid Ghul, welcome again. Thank you, Bonnie. The U.S. appears to be sinking into a quagmire in Afghanistan. The number of U.S. troops on the ground keeps rising, and the number of troops killed and wounded keeps rising as well. The much-trumpeted operation in the Helmand uh, River Valley around Marja didn't succeed in permanently removing resistance fighters. Since that was its sole purpose, it was a failure. The planned attack on uh, Kandahar has been delayed, and many outlying operating bases have been abandoned by the U.S. forces as too costly to hold, such as in Nuristan and Kunar in the northeast. Isn't the United States losing the war on the ground in Afghanistan? Well, Bonnie, right from the beginning, uh, this, this war was a lost war. There was no way that it could be won. And uh, I think uh, we need to review this. I want to do this one favor to the American people because I like them. They are so innocent that uh, they are taken up for a ride quite easily because of disinformation, because of the propaganda hype by those people who control the sinews of power in America. So I think this is uh, an opportunity that you are providing me to educate them that this war was a lost war from the very beginning, from its very inception. Uh, And uh, I want to pass a professional judgment on it. And I would want any American soldier worth his salt, soldier, general, corporal, or whatever it is, 
to tell me that I am wrong. I would wish that they tell me that I am wrong. You know, uh, because wars are fought within a certain environment. That environment is both political, logistical, and it is combat environment in which wars are fought and won or lost for that matter. Now, from the beginning, the premise on which the American case stands against Afghanistan was totally wrong because not a single Afghan was ever involved in any act of terrorism outside the boundaries of Afghanistan and that inside, they say this is our freedom struggle and they are a proud, uh, rather I would describe them as ferociously proud race and Americans who love their freedom, why should they want to curb their freedom of this proud and and uh, free nation. Now that premise was basically, it was uh, a delusion created that uh, we will be able to beat the daylight of everybody and, you know, that revenge motivation that will take our revenge. But this wasn't it. I think the latent objectives were very different. In our last program, we discussed this, that the latent uh, objectives were not to serve the American people, uh, but to serve corporate America to some extent, but uh, more than that, to satisfy the whims and the ambition of the Cold War uh, warriors uh, like Dick Cheney and company. And incidentally, I know them personally, Dick Cheney, Richard Armitage, Ramsfield, etc. I have been dealing with them when I was heading the ISI in the days of the uh, heady days of the Afghan Jihad uh, in Afghanistan. So I know what is their mindset. And I think it was to satisfy the whims of this coterie of people uh, who wanted... Uh, to conquer the world, if you like, or establish a past, a past Americana, that means an American century, 21st century will be the American century. So these were hyperboles, I think, and uh, they have brought tremendous damage. So first, the premise has to be correct for going to war. That wasn't correct at all, and I think it was based on lies, 9-11, is, uh, in my opinion, still uh, is, is, is a huge, big uh, fraud which has been perpetrated on the world, but more than that on the American people themselves. And because they could not win a vote in support of a war of this kind, so they had to create uh, an excuse so that the, there would be word sympathy, which there was after 9-11, and the American people would be so angry, annoyed, and alarmed that they would not question their government about their credentials and the veracity of what happened uh, on 9-11. That apart, now we come to the situation and judge it militarily. So for going to war, apart from the political support that you need to have, and that is declining, as uh, you understand, now it's more than 60% Americans have turned against the war. Uh, but... Uh, after a lot of damage, as Churchill once said, Americans eventually do the right thing after they have exhausted all the wrong options. So I think, unfortunately, this is the condition that is applicable here. So Americans, uh, when they go to war, you know, first thing that we have to ensure is the line of communication. The communication has to be good. Now here is a line of communication which passes through Pakistan in on two routes. One is from Karachi to Chaman, 
uh, that is to the southern Afghanistan, and the other is from Karachi to Torkham, which is to the central Afghanistan. These, each one of them are uh, the line that runs from Karachi to uh, Torkham is about 1,100 miles long. And then uh, the other one is about uh, 1,300 uh, miles long. So these are long and tenuous uh, lines of communication. But to, uh, first of all, sustaining them in a country which is not uh, on board with you, uh, because uh, they they like this war, or it is because their war, but because they have been armed, twisted, or they have been coerced into supporting you. So these lines of communication remain uh, insecure, to say the least. Only yesterday there was a, a huge damage caused to the columns that were going uh, into Afghanistan carrying supplies for NATO. Uh, but that was not the only thing. The, the other wrong thing that happened was that the Indians, who are the arch rivals of Pakistan, were allowed a free hand to destabilize Pakistan inside. And they were able to motivate some of the uh, annoyed young men uh, and to cause damages in the cities, bomb blasts, this, that, the other. So when Pakistan was paying the huge price for uh, participation in this war against terrorism, and there is an anti-American sentiment also very rampant. I think 68% Pakistanis have outrightly said that they hate America. Now, in this situation, these lines of communication are not sustainable. So uh, there is no way that you can fight a war and win without uh, secure and very easy line of communication and short line of communication. In this case, line of communication are both insecure and also very long. The second important thing outside the battle zone is uh, the... Uh, intelligence input, intelligence input. Now, uh, intelligence input, uh, in case of Iraq, there was a failure. In case of 9-11, there was a failure. In case of many other areas, there have been failures. And now the WikiLeaks is also pointing to the fact that this was a huge intelligence failure. So if the intelligence input is going to be faulty, then how do you hope to win the war right from the beginning? And why the intelligence failure has been there? Because the human intelligence aspect, which is so very important component of the total intelligence spectrum, that human intelligence is not provided if it is not accurate then you are not able to collect the information through only electronic means, your satellite flying uh, overhead and they will pick up the signals and this, that, the other. It has failed. That, uh, If that was the analogy, that was the thesis, that our technical intelligence or electronic and signal intelligence would fully supplant the human intelligence, then this has not worked. And this should have been realized a long time back. I know there was uh, less amount of uh, investment in human intelligence uh, after, I think, uh, Edgar Hoover and uh, many other people, the big names, uh, and Bill Casey, after Bill Casey particularly, uh, because I know I had known Bill Casey directly. So after that, the CIA was uh, relying more on NSA, the National Security Agency, and much of the funding was going to to the NSA and uh, uh, relatively less 
to the uh, human intelligence aspect of the CIA. So human intelligence was a failure, and you don't win wars in third world countries, particularly where it is technical intelligence does not work. You have to have reliable sources. Then on top of it, uh, to gather intelligence, and this is amazing. I mean, it is so outlandish that one has nothing but to lament about it, uh, being an old intelligence and military professional, that you rely on security contractors to provide you the intelligence. So, God's sake, what is this? I mean, I was aghast when someone came and mentioned to me that they wanted to mix the CIA with the security contractors, with the Navy SEALs, and with the Marines of the Army, and so on and so forth. One was known as Delta Force, the other is known as Orange Force, and third one is known as some other force. And then this uh, conglomeration or this admixture of these forces that they would carry out the intelligence work. It's never done. Regular military, uh, regular troopers are never mixed with the intelligence art goals because this will destroy both the organization because they don't uh, meet, their frequencies don't meet, and therefore it was so. Intelligence was a failure, line of supply was a failure. Now, that when you have these two negative factors, there is no way that you can win a war particularly in a country like Afghanistan. Now let's come to the battle zone. I think in the battle zone, the opposition was underestimated. They thought that they would come and uh, throw out the Afghan government, uh, Taliban government, and the, uh, the Afghan people will receive them with garlands, and they would say, okay, okay good riddance of bad rubbish, and thereafter everything is going to be hunky-dory. But this was not to be so, because I don't think the policy planners in America read the history of the Afghans. And it is amazing. Why? Because we were involved with the Afghans during the, for nearly a decade during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So why were the American policymakers not being able to read into the Afghan character, that they don't give up? And the war in Afghanistan begins only after the... Uh, occupation has taken place. And uh, I'm not saying this. Churchill has said this. Many other uh, British historians have said this. That it is amazing that the war in Afghanistan begins only after the occupation forces have declared themselves victorious. And then the war begins. Because this is a war of attrition. Uh, this is a war of nibbling away slowly, gradually, building up your strength. Because this is not like uh, uh, firepower against firepower, a number of men against number of men. This is this was not this was not the case in Afghanistan. And if anybody was assuming uh, this, then he was dead wrong. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show. Why America Cannot Win in Afghanistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, really, uh, this the proper study was not carried out. The proper assessment was not carried out. The resilience of the Afghan nation, the, the strength of the Taliban, and uh, the, the fact that uh, they had... Uh, brought peace and tranquility to Afghanistan, even though their measures were harsh, 
but they had de-weaponized the society. They had eliminated the poppy cultivation in Afghanistan by one edict, by one order. They had done this, which you are not able to do so now. And that the Taliban, on the whole, in the countryside, they were liked because they are used to such harsh, harsh ways. And then as far as women education was concerned, unnecessary hype was created. The, this is the Afghan society. They have their own style. There were certain liberated women in some of the big cities like Kabul and Mazar-e-Sharif and Herat, to name just three, because there is no other city where women had that kind of liberty. And these 30,000, 35,000-odd women, they were deemed to be the population which was uh, highly oppressed by the Taliban, and there was so much of propaganda against them. So, uh, on the whole, it was not realized that Taliban may have become unpopular, but they were unpopular in the rest of the world and in the cities, some cities of Afghanistan, but they were not unpopular in the countryside of Afghanistan. There, people liked their ways and they followed them and they respected them because they were not corrupt. Whatever else they may have been, they may have been harsh, but they were just they were fair, they had set up the Sharia system, and the Afghan nation on the whole, by and large, likes the Sharia laws because Sharia laws mean quick justice, quick dispensation of justice and disposal of uh, cases in the court. So that was another thing on the battlefield which was not looked into. Then they started supporting those people who were corrupt, they thought that with the help of those, those corrupt people, they'll be able to win the war. And what is disastrous, that in the in the beginning, the declared objective, uh, which was Osama bin Laden, that the capture of Osama bin Laden or killing him, for him, they had out, outsourced, rather than use their own military for such important target, they picked up a commander called Hazrat Ali from Jalalabad and uh, gave him tons of money, dollars, and said, you surround Tora Bora, where daisy cutters and thermobaric bombs were, were used against civilian population. Very unfortunate. So civilian population turned against them. When Hazrat Ali and company were receiving money from one side, they were receiving money from the both sides. They should have known that Afghan character is like that. They would take money from both sides. So they outsourced the most critical area in which they should have gone themselves physically, they were reluctant to go in, and, and I don't know on whose advice, but this was. So this happened, and Osama bin Laden slipped out. So that was the prime objective, and that was lost. And you don't know where he is now, and you're still carrying out. It's called the chasing of shadows. And Osama bin Laden is now a proverbial uh, um, bird, I forget the name, what bird that is that's supposed to be existing, but it isn't there, really. I don't know what is uh, the condition of Osama bin Laden, whether he's living or he's not, and I think that is what Leon Pinata and other intelligence uh, chiefs have said. Uh, so that is where you went wrong. Okay, now we come to the battlefield. Selection of objectives. At one time, and rightly, it was said that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda to be dispersed out of Afghanistan, 
and Osama bin Laden to be the capture, uh, the objective of our uh, our operation in order to capture them. The Afghans and Taliban were not the objective. It was a declared, stated objective. But what is the objective now? Because uh, Al-Qaeda has dispersed. Al-Qaeda is now concentrating in the Red Sea area, around Somalia, around Yemen, and they are getting closer and closer to the state of Israel. That seems to be there center of gravity. Uh, Osama bin Laden is still elusive. We don't know where he is. Sometimes they say, well, there may be 60 to 70 or 60 to 100 operators in any of the uh, area uh, spread between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And <laughs> do you know how big this area is? In length alone, it is 2,500 kilometers. So what is this uh, nonsense? I think this is uh, uh, befooling the people, befooling the uh, the, the supporters uh, of the war. I think uh, this is neither here nor there. As far as the numbers are concerned, uh, 60 to 70 uh, Al-Qaeda operator may be present in any of the European countries, if you like, in any in France, in Germany, in UK. Uh, so many of these may be present even in those countries, so why not attack them? So really it doesn't click the logic. And now the objectives have been totally changed from catching Osama bin Laden, killing him, and dispersing the Al-Qaeda. Now you have shifted, now the American objectives are declared by the President of America is to reverse the momentum of the Taliban. Taliban movement is not restricted now only to Taliban cadres. It has become a veritable uh, national resistance movement. That means the objective now implicitly is to defeat the Afghan nation. And that is not possible. Nations cannot be defeated by invading armies when they can come to resist. And that is true of Afghanistan, if not of any other country. Because Afghan nation, when it comes to resist, it cannot be defeated. So you have set yourself a new goal, and this is disastrous. Anybody, any soldier who has any inkling of elementary military knowledge of, of military history, military principle, would tell you that selection of a correct aim and maintenance of that single aim is very important. So that means your original aim was wrong, and therefore you have now deviated and changed your aim. And this is what from Sun Tzu, who was a Chinese military philosopher, and through Napoleon to MacArthur, everybody has said maintenance and selection and maintenance of a single aim. And here there is a duplication of aims, number one. And then there is not duplication only, there is multiple aims. And then there is this changing of the goalpost. You set your armed forces one goalpost and you have set them another goalpost. I mean, this has been shifted. So this is a fundamental mistake. No army in the world, when it starts changing, shifting from one goal to another one, can ever hope to win. But now come to the more mundane, but more uh, uh, effective, or rather the, 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 the chief determinants of the situation on the battlefield. These are three factors, Bonnie. Very important factors, and I want your listeners to really pay attention to it. 
One is time, the other is uh, space, and the third is relative strength. Interplay of these three factors decides the outcome of the war, victory or defeat. Uh, as far as relative strength is concerned, undoubtedly, Americans have, there are two aspects to relative strength. Number of people that you have, number of boots, number of men that are fighting, that is one important aspect. And number of men means their morale also and their commitment to the cause. And the other is the firepower. So manpower and the firepower together constitute the factor of relative strength. Now, undoubtedly, in the area of uh, firepower, there is no match to America. But that firepower cannot be actualized in the hills and dales of Afghanistan for the obvious reason that the target is not there. You will Firepower can be used only... Uh, when you know the target, exact location of the target. So it turns out that whenever you use firepower, you kill civilians. And uh, thousands and thousands of civilians, have marriage parties, the funeral processions, and this and the other, all have suffered because of this, and that has annoyed the Afghan nation to no end, and therefore greater uh, sympathy for the freedom fighters in Afghanistan. So... Firepower is not really as effective as uh, it could be, let's say, if you were fighting the Russians or you were fighting somebody else who had uh, a matching firepower and you have a superior firepower to that, then that becomes relevant. You may have all the Nebraska uh, submarines and Polaris missiles and this, that, the other. Uh, and, but this is not of any consequence in this kind of a war of attrition. So the firepower also is limited. And now we come to the manpower. Every time the American uh, commanders in Afghanistan have been demanding more troops, surge, they have been asking for surge. Initially, a surge of 21,000, as soon as uh, President Obama stepped into the Oval Office, uh, he provided 21,000 more troops. That could not make any difference. And then... Uh, Another 40,000 troops by, were asked for by McChrystal. So McChrystal continued to ask. It is reminiscent of Vietnam, where General Westmoreland, who was a great general in his own right, but he kept on asking for more and more troops at that time against the Viet Cong. And finally, the figure was 556,000. More than half a billion troops, American troops, were committed in Vietnam. Here again, it seems to be a similar situation. Whereas Operation Marja, which was known as Operation Mushtarak, that means Afghan forces and the other forces would join together. So if the asking for manpower has not, and everyone knows what happened to Marja, and you mentioned about Kandhar not taking off from the ground, Really, I don't think operation is possible, not in this year at least, and therefore the year will run out, uh, elections will be over, uh, the Congress election, the Senate elections, etc., and then there will be a perhaps a new policy which will be announced by the president. So if additional manpower has not worked, we will term it as reinforcing the failure, that you have been reinforcing your troops but uh, you have been reinforcing basically, which has, which has already been uh, practically become a failure. So it is, or call it investment in error, 
both terms are used in military, they are reinforcing the failure or investing in the error. If you, in, at this stage, as a professional judgment, I can say, if instead of 40,000, if you were to put in 400,000 more troops, still you cannot win Afghanistan, where the situation stands. Because the initiative is with now with the opposition or with the Afghan Mujahideen, and more and more uh, recruits are joining up their ranks, and they are coming from all the other countries also, wherever they are, because there is nothing like the the feeling, the the uh, the sense of uh, victory, the smell of victory. They are smelling victory, and therefore their ranks are swelling. Whereas the Americans have already said that from next year onward, we'll start drawing down on, on the presence of troops. And we are not here to stay for forever. That's the policy. So obviously, the other side would uh, attack more recruitment. And that is what is happening. So on the scales of relative strength, you can say half the factor is in favor of America. The other half is not. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, Why America Cannot Win in Afghanistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now we come to the two other factors, which is, I said, I remember I told you, relative strength and space and time. So let's come to the space. The spaces are with the freedom fighters. They are with the Taliban. They control the countryside. And everyone knows that the countryside is totally in the control. Where the road ends, from there the Taliban territory begins. And it is there, and their um, prowess in that area is so much that the people simply support them, after all. Uh, they are involved in guerrilla warfare, and guerrilla cannot exist. It's like fish in water, and water in this case is the population. So that means population, local population, is supporting them. That is why operations against them are not successful. So spaces are totally in their control. The Allied and the American forces, the NATO and the ISAF forces, they are all confined to the garrison town. They are being squeezed into the garrison town, and they dare not venture out. Currently, the casualty rate, daily casualty rate, is between five to seven NATO and American forces. Soldiers being, these are the fatality figures. Every day I keep on reading the newspaper, and it is between five to uh, seven. And uh, the Afghan casualties are even more than that. The Afghan policemen, the Afghan uh, soldiers, etc. Now, what is the condition of the Afghan soldiers in this case? They are not fighting. They are, whenever they find an opportunity, they start killing the NATO forces. Some angry Afghan soldier would uh, turn his gun upon his own colleagues in, of NATO and uh, ISAF or American. So their morale is low. They are not prepared to fight. The Afghan police is still not uh, up to the level. So there are a lot of problems on that score as well. Out of three, we have discussed two. The spaces are with Taliban, and they are squeezing the occupation forces more and more as the days go by. The third factor is time factor. Now, you have already said, you put a time limit that we will start drawing down from 
July 2011. Fine, good. And everyone knew that it, this time cannot be unlimited. You may change here and there by a few months, but it do have to go. The Americans have to go pull out of Afghanistan. If that be the case, and some commander, Afghan commander, very rightly said that uh, Americans have the watch, but we have the time. So time is factor is on their side. So. Uh, really, out of the three factors of time, space, and relative strength, two and a half factors are in the control of Taliban or the opposition fighters. And only one half factor is in favor of America. With this kind of a combination, with this kind of interplay of these factors, tell me, bring any soldier, like I challenged before, I, I, I do so now again, that ask any soldier in America to come and discuss with me how are you going to win this war. What an incredible summation of the situation. Thank you for that, uh, General Google. You covered a lot of territory there. Um, last week, you talked about the intense pressure the U.S. is putting on the Pakistani government and military to fight a proxy war in the tribal area that borders on Afghanistan. The U.S. pressure is said to be due to the support provided by the Pashtuns in the tribal areas for their brethren, the Pashtuns of Afghanistan, in their resistance to the U.S. occupation of their country. The U.S. uses the term Taliban to describe the fighters on both sides of the border. But isn't the resistance to U.S. occupation in Afghanistan much more complex in reality? Could you describe the true complexity of the situation on the ground? To whom does the term Taliban properly refer? And what other resistance forces are operating in specific areas? Taliban are the organic part of the Afghan society, and I think they have a long history. Whenever Afghanistan has been struck by a foreign invader, the Taliban, that means the students, Taliban exactly means student in literal terms. So students have risen uh, for jihad, and their teachers have joined them. Uh, now, here was the case, like uh, Yunus Khales, uh, Walvi Muhammad Nabi, Muhammadi, these are the important names, and Professor Sayaf, Professor Mujaddadi, Ustad Brahmuddin Rabani, Ustad Kareem Khalili, and whatever, long list of teachers uh, who, and along with their students, they came out to fight jihad against the Soviet Union. But when Soviets withdrew, they started, uh, the leaders started fighting for power. The Taliban, so-called students, they left them, they abandoned them, apart from very few, and they went back to their education. They opened their madrasas, like Mullah Omar opened a madrasa in Urzikan in his uh, home country, and uh, there he uh, started teaching some 40 students, and he himself was learning, because Taliban means the students, not the teachers. So. They abandoned their teachers, and that is how. But after a while, they realized that uh, Afghan society was being ripped apart. So they uh, stood up and they said, uh, we have got to cleanse this mess, and they started off. This is the story of the Taliban. And interestingly and ironically, the Taliban movement, which is supposed to be anti-women, Basically, it started on the, when a, a newlywed girl was raped, 
they started uh, this movement. At that time, Mullah Omar was the first one to rise, and he says, now uh, it is uh, it has become incumbent on us that we give up our education and we take to the jihad, take to the field and fight these uh, infidels out because they have uh, started behaving like infidels, their own uh, old commanders. So they fought against them and population supported them because population was, uh, common people were fed up with the, with the kind of atrocities that they were facing every day. That's the story of the Taliban. Now, Taliban are basically sons, wards, relatives of the same people. They come from them, not anybody, an entity which has descended from heaven. They're very much part of that society. If they start wearing white turban, then they are civilians. If they put on a black turban, then they become Taliban. So, <laughs> really, when you are hunting for Taliban, you are asking for the moon because there is no way that you can distinguish a Talib from somebody else. Uh, if he is wearing uh, a black turban, then you can suspect him that he is a Talib. But if he is wearing a turban of any other color, then what will you say? He is an ordinary citizen. So, as far as Pakistan is concerned, Pakistan is really very, very angry about the Indian presence in uh, in Afghanistan because Indians are leaving no opportunity to hurt Pakistan. They are arming uh, the uh, terrorist groups which are in our tribal area or they are on the other side in Afghanistan. They are sending them to carry out uh, uh, suicidal blasts and they are doing everything possible. They are, they are inciting insurgency in our Balochistan province, which is very, very sensitive to both Iran and Pakistan. And they are creating a lot of problems. On top of it, the security contractors and the last document released by WikiLeaks fully reveals this, that security contractors, the Z Worldwide Services, who have 30 other different names, they are operating secretly, clandestinely inside Pakistan, and they have recruited a large number of people from our own people, from our own public, who are doing anti-state activities. So Pakistan is very unhappy about it. Now, the Americans have been pressurizing Pakistan, sometimes unreasonably, that we move into North Waziristan because that other areas have all been attacked by Pakistan Army and Pakistan Army is present there, no less than 150,000. Now, this matches the figure of total ISAF NATO American forces in Afghanistan. They are around 150,000. And Pakistan has deployed 150,000 troops along our uh, western border, which, is, which adjoins the uh, Afghan territories. Now, Pakistan says we cannot pull out any more troops from our eastern border to be engaged in the western border. And this is realistic because the Indians are not changing their stance. There is a movement going on in Kashmir. It is now no more militant movement. Militancy has taken a very, very, very far back seat. It is now a political movement being waged by the young men and women of Kashmir. And all they are asking for their right of vote, which has been guaranteed to them 
uh, in the United Nations resolutions. Uh, and India is a signatory to that resolution, but India is flouting that. So India is being given undue advantage by the Americans, and everything is being asked of Pakistan in spite of India's belligerent, hostile attitude towards Pakistan, that Pakistan should pull troops out from the eastern border, deploy them on the western border. I think this is not going to be, especially now that the flood have hit Pakistan so badly, ravaged nearly 20% of Pakistan's territory, and displaced some uh, 20 million people who require an army is the only institution which can provide this kind of uh, relief work to them and resettlement and rehabilitation. So they should forget about it. Pakistan cannot do this. It is not possible. It is not physically possible. So as far as this demand is concerned, it is not cogent. It is not a reasonable demand. How many troops did you say that Pakistan has on its western border with Afghanistan? 150,000. That's what I thought you said, and that's the total amount of troops that NATO and the U.S. have in Afghanistan. Yes, that means the troops they have. In fact, NATO and U.S. ISAF are 147,000, whereas Pakistani troops are 3,000 more, 150,000. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, Why America Cannot Win in Afghanistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You are familiar with the long history of the war against the occupiers of Afghanistan going back through the period of the Soviet occupation. The Afghan resistance defeated the Soviets with Pakistani and U.S. help. Can you compare the present situation of the NATO forces to any particular period in the Soviet attempt to conquer Afghanistan? What parallels between the two occupations are evident to you? Ah, remarkable question. I think uh, it it will throw some very interesting light on the whole uh, scenario here. Uh, the Soviet Union, when they came in, they had a tremendous amount of political support among the communist cadres, political cadres. Communist Party, which was split into two factions, known as Parcham and uh, uh, Khalk. These were two parties, but they had the same objective, to uh, sort of have a communist order established in Afghanistan. And the Mujahideen, ragtag Mujahideen at that time, they were resisting them on their own. But they were able to trounce this government or almost trounce this government when Soviet Union got alarmed back in the December of 1978-79. And they struck Afghanistan with a direct invasion with 140,000 troops. So its figure is the same. But interestingly, at that time, Nearly a quarter million Afghan forces existed at that time. They were well-equipped, not as well-equipped as the Western armies, but they were quite reasonably equipped with the APCs, with the tanks, and with everything that you can name. They had tons of uh, equipment at their disposal, and they, their number was quarter million. So 150,000 Soviet Union troops and and a quarter million of the Afghan uh, trained, highly trained, uh, not as well as the Western troops, not as well as Pakistani troops, but quite well trained. So this kind of force was available. 
the police force was in addition to it about 100000 so altogether there was an infrastructure which was available to the soviet union uh, and they were politically motivated the pacham and khalkis they were communists and they were politically motivated to to side with the soviet uh, union uh, so relative strength wise you can see what was the nature of it when they came in they had no support the taliban of that time called them the mujahideen they were known as mujahideen now they are called taliban the mujahideen of that time hikmat yaar and others they were youngsters and buranuddin rabani was one of the oldest and malvi khalis etc but all other people amir shah masood and all they were young fellows they were students at that time they left their schools and they and and their colleges and they came and joined the resistance and uh, for nearly year and a half they resisted on their own with some little help and because i was even at that time as director military intelligence and i was approached that uh, the afghans require some uh, old derelict weapons so could i uh, scrounge through the uh, the old depots military depots and find out if i, if I could have some weapons uh, spare some weapons for them so we cannibalize these weapons these are called lee enfield right lee enfield rifles for old old rifles very old and some muzzle loaders believe you me some this was all that we cannibalized them and gave them whatever we had the number so they were not fighting with the american help they were for a year and a half they fought on their own with some help from pakistan very little help and this is how they began but when uh, zegnyu brzezinski came here uh, i think in uh, 1980 he realized that uh, because cia had given it up as a as a closed chapter afghanistan was a closed chapter as far as they were concerned and soviet union was too powerful and they thought that they should better worry about the uh, gulf area and they were deploying forces in that area they were trying to arrange something there but uh, brzezinski realized that the afghan resistance was very very strong afghan resistance uh, uh, was determined and general zaulak was a very determined committed man therefore the american first uh, allocation in budget uh, initially jimmy carter who was the president at that time he announced an aid of uh, 400 billion dollars for pakistan in interestingly pakistan was under sanctions at that time so because uh, zaulak had taken over the reins of power it was a military rule and naturally the democrats in um, uh, in america were very angry about it so this 400 million dollars that was uh, offered to pakistan in aid it was turned down by zaulak and he termed it as peanuts and became kind of a joke because Uh, president carter came from alabama which is the heart of the yeah, peanut territory the heart of the peanut territory so uh, this became kind of a joke because it was it deemed to be a pun uh, held out by uh, general zaulak but then slowly gradually the american aid started coming in but american aid was we were training our people afghan people were training only afghan and then towards the end we were training something like 27000 uh, a year when i was the head of the isi uh, but bulk of the training and all the sacrifices were made by the afghan people themselves 
and 1.3 million Afghans were killed. And imagine the Afghan population is not more than um, 25 million. And out of that, 1.3 million Afghans were killed. 3.5 million Afghans became refugees in Pakistan, and 1.5 million became refugees in Iran. And nearly um, 2 or 3 million were internal refugees. So can you imagine the devastation that was caused? And this nation, having made such tremendous sacrifices for the free world, they were fighting for their own cause also, for the cause of freedom. And that they are capable of making such sacrifices. Is there any nation in the world which can make such sacrifices? No, it is not uh, imaginable, believe you me, because this uh, world which has become so much materialistic, it uh, looks to material gains, it looks to life is very dear and important to them. But to Afghan, his freedom and his faith is very important. So Afghans were able to resist very effectively. Now come to compare of this now. Same volume of troops, same quantum of troops as Soviet Union. I mean, they were 140 at the peak. But now the Afghan forces so far in the over last nine years that you have been able to build in Afghanistan, they number no more than uh, 70 to 80,000. That's all. Compare this to well-trained quarter million Afghan forces at that time. And there is no political motivation here. These forces are only out to take money, to, to grab dollars. The Afghan government is a corrupt government. The communist government was not corrupt. But this government is a highly corrupt government. Karzai's government is gangster's government. It is mafia government. Karzai's own uh, half-brother, uh, Ahmed Wali Karzai, who is uh, located in Kandar, he is the governor's council, or probably governor himself. He is known to be the biggest uh, drug baron. And the drug trade is going on uh, like never before. And I'll give you some figures. What is the situation on the drug front? Before the Taliban rule, when the Mujahideen were fighting among themselves uh, after Soviet uh, vacation of Afghanistan, the volume of opium, raw opium that was produced by Afghanistan was uh, 4,500 tons. In the last year of Taliban rule, it dropped down to 50 tons a year, 50 tons only, and that too in territories which were not under control of the Taliban. So much so that the Drug Enforcement Agency of America, through Christina Rocco, who was then the Assistant Secretary of State, gave a prize of $41 million. It is on record to the Taliban government, even though the Taliban government was under sanction. But Drug Enforcement Agency thought it fit that they had done such a wonderful work that they would uh, give them a, a prize. $41 million uh, were sanctioned for them. I don't know whether they were paid or not. I think they were probably paid and accepted by Taliban at that time. Now, at this time, last year, the opium uh, production in Afghanistan is a record 6,200 tons, which caters to more than 90% of the world's entire need. Previously, we know that these big drug uh, cashies 
and uh, confinements used to be caught in Pakistan. But of late, there have been no such catches in Pakistan. So if this record uh, uh, level of production of opium uh, in Afghanistan is uh, going out to somewhere, after all, it's not being used in Afghanistan, how is it going? It's not going through Iran. It is not going through Pakistan. Some of it is going through the uh, Central Asian republics. But most of it is being directly flown. Now, this is very alarming. Directly flown uh, from Afghanistan to Europe as well as to America. And I don't know. I, I'm not uh, yet sure that military aircraft are used for it or not. But I'm sure the people, big wigs up there, who are not interested in stopping the drug trade, they are involved in it. Who are those people? That's uh, something which is for the American journalists, because unfortunately this term embedded journalism, it is such a despicable term to, to begin with, and it's such a uh, horrible concept that truth can never come out. So let, first of all, America uh, allow free journalism to, to, to uh, cover Afghanistan, and then they will know what all is happening. On the side of uh, construction work, because a lot of American money and American dollars are going into reconstruction, rehabilitation, I think four times more money is being spent than that is what is visible on the ground. And I know certain sources because the uh, these news filter out of Afghanistan and some Afghan civilians who come and uh, talk about this, they are saying that the Corps of Engineers of America, who are responsible for the, wherever the Americans are uh, involved in construction, they uh, ask them to sign on an amount three times bigger than the one that they receive. So graft is rampant. Corruption is rampant. And a mafia or a gangster government is running the country. Uh, how the hell in this situation you can control Afghanistan? Now, Karzai has announced uh, uh, that he will uh, set up a council, high council, to talk to Taliban. Believe you me, they will not talk. Because they despise uh, Karzai. Uh, in their eyes, he is a traitor. They would rather readily talk to the Americans because Americans are a party, whereas Karzai is a puppet. They will not talk to a puppet, but they would probably be prepared to talk to a party. And I think that is the approach that we should take. Why are we trying to delay this? If you know that this is a foregone conclusion, you cannot win in Afghanistan, then it is time to cut your losses rather than wait until the enemy's pressure or his offensive becomes so big. Like in the Tet Offensive in, uh, in Vietnam in the old days, uh, when Americans had to cut and run out of there, and they were flying uh, by hanging on to the landing pads of the helicopters. Those scenes should not be repeated here in Afghanistan, because that would be very humiliating. And since Pakistan is a frontline state for America at this time, I would feel very ashamed if the Americans were to leave in this fashion. So I think it's uh, time for showing some sagacity, some wisdom, and changing the paradigm, which is very important. And now, of course, after Obama announced that there will be a drawdown, and because of the Taliban pressure, 
the property prices in kabul have, are coming down very sharply in fact they are down to about uh, 50% less uh, already and uh, there is a rush on the banks as well people are trying to draw money out of afghanistan so i don't know why americans are delaying the the major decision that they have to take there has to be a paradigm shift before long and the sooner it comes the better general hamid ghul thank you very much you're welcome bonnie very kind of you you're welcome if i can educate the american people to take the right decision i think i'll be a very lucky man I've been speaking with General Hamid Ghul. Today's show has been Why America Cannot Win in Afghanistan. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI, from 1987 to 1989, during the fateful period of Afghan jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. He attended Staff College Camberley in the United Kingdom. As a young officer, he attended the U.S. Pacific Army's Intelligence School in Okinawa, Japan. General Ghul faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad, protesting attempts to dismiss the Chief Justice. He has written hundreds of columns, mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. Visit his website at www.generalhamidghul.com. That's General Hamid Ghul. H A M I D G U L dot com. There is some information there in English. Today's show was produced by Todd Fletcher and Bonnie Faulkner. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at b l faulkner at yahoo dot com. That's b l f a u l k n e r at yahoo dot com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. You dig me? You got me?